Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing great today, Tim. Uh, sort of hunkering down because we got a big snowstorm coming in this weekend, but we also have a big storm of conversation coming up with a old friend. Finally have him on the show, but before we get to that, I hope everyone out there is doing great. And Tim, how are you? I'm doing great too. Thanks a lot for asking. Not looking forward to this snowstorm, but who knows, maybe me and the kids will get out there and uh, throw some snowballs around. This conversation is great. We speak with Bob Ruff, and I feel like this is a really long time coming, and I think Bob even says as much in this episode that when we first met him in 2016, we said, let's get you on Crawl Space. Well, seven years later, we're finally making that happen, Bob. Exactly. You say it in the episode that we are men of our words. Might take a little while, but we will make this happen. But, you know, these things come around for a reason. We reconnected with Bob at Obsess Fest, got the opportunity to actually sit down with him in between sessions and really have great conversations. And that was sort of like, what are we waiting for moment? We keep talking about getting you on. Let's do this. So yes, we have him on. And he doesn't just talk about the cases that he's covered in his podcast, Truth and Justice. He does talk a lot about the process and how he had adjusted from his life as a firefighter and a fire chief to this true crime advocate for the wrongfully convicted. It's really fascinating. You can check out his show at truthandjusticepod.com. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are already listeners of his. He's on season 12, and we talk a little bit about the current season. But yeah, it's mostly about kind of life in uh, the crime media space and a little bit about his time doing stand-up comedy, which is interesting. And Tim, if people want to hear this episode and all of the other Crawl Space episodes without the ads, where would one go? One can now subscribe to Crawl Space Premium via Apple Podcasts, so right there in their app. But if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and you can sign up for Crawlspace Premium there. You get ad-free episodes, you get early releases, and our fantastic weekly bonus show that we recently brought you a preview of and people are raving about. So make sure to check that out. And we've been threatening to do these Ask Us Anythings once a month, and that looks like it's going to come to fruition. We will be providing our subscribers an email address. You send us an email letting us know you want to be a part of it and then we'll send you a private zoom link and we'll do that once a month and tim something that happened yesterday that we had a lot of fun doing was a live broadcast on instagram that's right yeah you can follow us on social media at crawlspace crawlspace podcast or crawlspace pod on all the social media platforms we'll be doing some more live videos we'll probably uh, tackle tiktok at some point too but yeah definitely follow us on social media tiktok included and before we tackle this episode we're gonna tackle some sponsors so we're gonna cut real quick for a spot no that was terrible why don't you do it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right, we're going to break quick for commercial here. We'll be right back with Bob Ruff of Truth and Justice. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Well, what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos. I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. 
Available wherever you get your podcasts. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Bob Ruff. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Myself and my red shirt are having a great little Wednesday. It's a wonderful red shirt. You really are popping over there. I just want to, before we get into this interview, introduce myself. I'm Lance and this is Tim. So I just wanted to introduce us to you. See, I know Tim. It's the, what would you say your name was again? Lance. Yes. Lance. Yes. Lance. Gotcha. Nice to meet you, Lance. Nice to meet you, Bob. <laughs> we have met, and that's kind of an inside joke about Lance and Bob not having <laughs> known each other. We have met several times at these conferences, uh-huh. CrimeCon, Obsessed Fest. We've had a grand old time together, and I feel like it's been a really long time coming to have you on Crawl Space. I think we talked about uh, me coming on Crawl Space the first time we met in like 2016, and we're just now coming around to it. <laughs> <laughs> How is hey, that possible? I we are men know. of our words. It, it may take a while, but we're men of our words. I'm glad you guys had me on. I appreciate it. And it's good to see you guys again and you, Lance, for the first time ever. <laughs> Until next time. Right, right. <laughs> What's going on? You're so busy. Lots of stuff. Obviously, we have Truth and Justice does two episodes a week. I have True Crime Binge does an episode every week. I started doing a little bit of comedy, which is something I didn't have time for, but I'm doing that a little bit on the weekend. So plus wife, four kids, you know, the whole thing. Let's start from the beginning. Go down the list. (laughs) What do you do? And how did you get started in true crime podcasting? I mean, it was an accident, really. I famously am not a big true crime fan, which is a weird thing for a true crime podcast host. But I listened like everybody else. The story sounds so damn cliche when I say it. But I listened to Serial. But for me, it wasn't. It was just that story had me hooked. And it was kind of the investigative piece of it that was super interesting to me. And I was like trying to solve the case on a notebook based on the 12 episodes of Serial. Everyone was sick of me talking about it. I had started my podcasting career a few months prior to that with a show we called Off Duty. I was a fireman and it was me and a few of my fireman friends would get together and just do kind of a shoot the shit type of podcast. So I had the equipment. I had this idea that, well, since nobody will talk to me about this Adnan Syed case, I'm going to start a podcast that's like a book club. So when I started it, it was like, I'm going to talk about a part of the case. And then you guys send me emails and I'll read your emails on the air and and I'll kind of talk about, we'll just kind of work together to try to figure this thing out. I mean, there was never a plan to have it be anything more than that. The audience grew very quickly. I always credit Robbie Ashaudry for my career because she was listening and started tweeting about it. And then so like all of a sudden, you know, I'm sitting in my little garden shed recording a podcast in, in rural Michigan and like, what the f- 50,000 people listen to this episode. What is going on? That story ended with me in Baltimore with in a room with Adnan's legal team at one point. And then people started asking me, hey, could you look at this wrongful conviction? Could you look at this one or this one? So ultimately, I ended up leaving the fire department. I took an early retirement from the fire department and started doing this full time. And now I'm 12 seasons in to covering wrongful conviction cases on truth and justice. Really like a round of applause for you for doing this. And I want to say fighting the good fight here. And you made it interactive with your listeners. And you said that it was never intentional. It's pretty rare to have a content creator invite people to contribute to the show and give their opinion to try to then make a situation, a wrongful conviction, something like that just overturned. I was going to ask this later on, but it all kind of lumps into what you said about being a firefighter. And then people now are reaching out to you about covering wrongful convictions. I want to ask all of the content creators that we have on this question who come from a very different background. 
and firefighting is different than true crime podcasting. Do you ever experience any imposter syndrome? I mean, I I have no need to unless I go to a conference. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't I live I live out in, in you know in rural area out in the country. I don't run into a lot of people that want autographs or anything. But for sure, anytime I go to like a conference or do an event or something, and there are fans there, I never understand it. The first time I went to a big event like that, Colin Miller from Undisclosed was there, and I still remember him and I standing at the bar having a drink. And then him just leaning over to me going, dude, isn't this nuts? Why are these people all here to see us? I'm like, you got me, man. You're comfortable in looking at a potential wrongful conviction. It's the fact that people recognize you that brings out the imposter syndrome. I don't know. And that, that's just something to do with my personality. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. So, for example, at the fire department, I started very young and I promoted through the ranks. And at 33 years old, I was promoted to fire chief. I was I reached the top of the organization and was the youngest full-time fire chief in Michigan's history. At that, I don't know if that's still true or not, but it was at the time. And that was the same thing. It was like once I was like, okay, this is my this is what I do. I'm a firefighter. Something in me is like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend or be coy or act like I'm being humble when I'm not. It was like, no, I've put everything I have into this. I'm confident in what I'm doing, and so I'm just going to do it. And it's the same thing. You know, Once I got to the point where I was doing this and people are asking me to cover their wrongful conviction cases, for some reason, and maybe it should, that it doesn't trigger that in me because this is my job. I've been, you know, I work with Innocence Project organizations all over the country that send them to me, and, and something in my mind tells me, well, if they think that I'm good at investigating these cases, then I'm just going to do it and not look back. But the nice part about that is, with the crowdsource model, I always have 100,000 people fact-checking me. Some people would see that as a downside, because and, and I do have to deal with a lot of internet troll stuff. But anything I do, every single episode, all those people are either telling me, hey, that's right, or hey, you missed this, or hey, you're wrong about that. So it's a constant check and balance between me and the audience. That's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, and how do you make something so detailed and deeply investigated consumable for your audience? Well, I don't know if it is consumable, Tim. Uh, <laughs> but, you know what? When did you guys start missing more Murray? It was around 2014, 2015, right? Yeah, summer of 2015. Same time I, I started Truth and Justice in, 20, in May of 2015. At that point, there wasn't a lot of of content out there for audiences to choose from. It wasn't super, well, I mean, it was tough, but it, it wasn't super difficult to start a show and for it to blow up and to get a big audience and make a career out of it. That, sadly, for new creators, that's not the case now. There's so many true crime podcasts out there. But over the years, the audience, like, I, I have less listeners now than I did then. You know, there's a lot of other options out there, and my show requires work. It's not it's not serial where it's this or like any of these Wondery originals, right, that are just beautifully crafted, pre-written, pre-produced. Here's this entire story wrapped up into this neat package of eight or 12 episodes. It's a grind. And you guys know that from what you do, what guys do with making uh, Missing Moore Murray is very similar to what I do with Truth and Justice, where this is long, ongoing, the same case. But it's and it's also not the you know the short form epi every episode's about a different case. It's just really not a show for passive listeners. There are episodes certainly, and I put a lot into production where I'm trying to you know make it interesting. And we've got a great sound designer Shane Shane Yoder who does the score on the show, and we do Kelly Brink who hosts the True Crime IRL podcast. She edits for us, so you know we we, we try to make it sound good. But the reality is. What I do is take a massive case file and every week break down one element of it at a time in painstaking detail to try to figure out, did the investigators get it right? 
If they didn't, what did they miss? And what is the data really telling us? And I invite the listeners to help with that. So as far as like being consumable for the, you know, the 5 million people that tune in to True Crime Obsessed every week, for example, those same people who are lovely, amazing people, a large majority of them don't want to work when they're listening to their podcast. You know what I mean? They don't, they, they, they want something they can passively listen to. And that's really not what true crime or truth and justice is. True crime binges. So if anybody wants to find that show, I would really like you to listen to that. <laughs> do you guys find the same thing? I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but I'm going to interview you. Uh, do you guys find the same thing with, with missing more Murray? Have you seen over the years where you kind of hone into the audience that's truly engaged in the work and not necessarily the entertainment value? Yeah, yeah. There's folks who keep up with every episode and then, you know, on Crawl Space, it's more of an interview show and less of right. like a thing that carries over from episode to episode. You know, we can produce episodes of Crawl Space quicker it stays fresher for the audience. And I think for us too, for sure. You guys, we should meet sometime Lance, because you guys have the <laughs> same model that I have where you have one podcast that's very long form. And then another one that is interviews and, and much shorter form. Uh, you guys, cause you guys, you guys have been on true crime binge, right? You guys have been on there with me. We have. Yeah. But it's the same thing for me. Exactly what you just said. Like that's almost a release for me just to sit down. Number one, talk to other creators and do an interview. I can turn them around faster and I can kind of catch my breath before I dig back into the heavy stuff. But with crowd solving, how is that different for you? Like how, if you are like ready to produce an episode, ready to upload it and you get like an email that is devastating to what you just put together. Like, how would you go about dealing with that? It's a nightmare. It doesn't happen too often. In fact, the one time I have at the top of my mind was actually a, a good thing, but it was one of those where, you you know, I'd spent 40 hours in a week putting together an episode and actually got our season two case that was just featured on the a Hulu special a couple of weeks ago at eight. It was like a Thursday. We'd already recorded. We were in the editing process. And then I got the phone call that Ed is going to get out of prison. It, and it was it was a 4 a.m. night, throw out, you know, throw out the rundown, start over, do everything. I haven't had that happen with not anything, anything significant as far as a case where like something bad or different came in. I had something actually a couple of weeks ago similar to that happen with our, our season 12 case. I was in the middle of prepping an episode about the trial testimony of somebody Another listener had access to the case file that I have because usually I release the documents that I'm covering each week as we go. So the idea is by the end of the season, you have the entire case file, but I want people focused on one thing at a time. So I release it that way. Well, this person had the whole case file and made a post. Luckily, it was early enough in the week. I hadn't already done the episode yet uh, that I was going to do about cell phone sector data and came to this like kind of crazy conclusion about it. It's being talked about on our discussion forum, so there's no at this point. I've got to shift gears and get that analyzed, scramble around, find an expert to analyze it, and put the episode together in real short time. This is essentially a nine to five basic job for you. Oh, I wish it was nine to five, Lance. <laughs> <laughs> How did you adapt from? Well, I guess it's not that different. Like as a firefighter, you're on call or you work like longer shifts, and then you're off for a couple of days. Uh, how did you just adapt from that style of work to this style of work? When I left the fire department to do this, I had been the chief for three years. So I already had like a Monday through Friday because I was, we used to work, I used to work 20 for 13 years. I worked 24 hour shifts, but I was on a, you know, a normal eight to five position at that point. The organizational part was the hardest thing is not so much the timing, you know, the, the, the time or the way the workload works. 
the, the case file I'm working at right now is almost 20,000 pages. Like to take that and be, be at the same time trying to read it all and consume it. Because I do everything in real time. So I don't have the luxury of like pre-producing anything. Figuring out what topic I'm going to cover that week. Organizing those documents. Studying them. Researching them. Having them analyze if I need to writing the script, getting the episode out. And then it's usually I get, you know, by Friday it goes out, the episode drops on Sunday, I get a day to breathe. So it was, it was more getting used to that organization and routine than any than anything else for me. I, I'm lucky enough that I was able to build my studio and office on at my, it's not in my house, but it's right next to my house, is it's very hard for me to not be working. You know, like, you know, I might, it's seven o'clock at night, go into the house and I'm done working, but then there's all the social, you know, it's crowdsourced. So there's social media. So I'm still sitting on the couch responding to people on, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. Not, I don't respond to just bullshit on the, you know, on, on social media, but you know, when there's people like asking questions about the case or giving input about the case, it's like, I'm just kind of always working. And so, so sometimes I have to just put my phone in the other room and unplug or I'll lose my mind or my wife will kill me. One of the two. To you, what are the benefits of crowdsourcing your show, Truth and Justice, versus pre-producing it? Well, it's the outcomes of the cases, I think. I could make, I'm certain, a much better living if I took six months off, studied the case, researched it, writ- wrote and produced episodes, and then put them out in, a, in that series type. I could make them sound great. They'd be much more, you know. You can build in all the all the things you do in story writing with with cliffhangers and foreshadowing and all that kind of stuff. But this model of crowdsourcing has proven to be extremely effective when it comes to actually moving the ball forward in these cases. It's it's shocking. And it does frustrate some audience sometimes because they're like, well, dude, give us the whole case file so we can look at it. What I've learned over these years is, like I mentioned, I'm covering cell phone sector data right now. I do an analysis. I talk about that. I put out those documents and the maps and the tower locations and everything. And then the audience, the, the really engaged audience, has only that to work with for the week. I mean, every week, something I missed, someone from the audience will be like, hey, you know, Maybe not the sector data, but say I'm say I'm doing like crime scene analysis, and I have all the crime scene photos up on the website because I post everything. Obviously, I redact victims' bodies and stuff like that. But for the most part, everything's up. I'll have people go like, "Hey, you know, they said nothing was stolen, but look at that picture. Uh, you know, picture number whatever. Look at the dust on top of the table, and you can see there's an outline that something had been there. And if you look down at the floor." you'll see a coaxial cable hanging out down there. Something was plugged into the... And a lot of times this turns into usable materials that the defense that are going to be working on like a habeas can use. I have to balance, do I want to really put out great consumable content that's very entertaining or put out content that is in a way that is basically, if I was in a room with all these people working specifically on an element of the case every week is is more what it feels like. And like, for example, season 12, I just, uh, this week was episode 46. So I'm coming up on, that's 46 weeks. Every one of those weeks also has a follow-up episode where we engage with listeners. That's now 92 episodes we've done on that case. And we're probably six months away from wrapping it up. Yeah, I was listening to your latest episode on the cell phone sector data. You know, I was at like cell phone pings. I didn't, I know what that is, but you were you had gone deeper than, than I had heard. So if you just listen to the most recent one, it's probably a little confusing. The one right before, that is where I laid a lot of groundwork because a lot of what I'm doing is teaching too. I was by trade, I was a public speaker and teacher through the fire department. I did, you know, I traveled, you know, nationally and taught courses and things like that. The first episode there was breaking down and teaching 
my audience, this is what these terms mean. This is how you map it out. This is how you can track location. This is where you can't track location, stuff like that. There's a lot of that that builds up into the next episode where if you had heard that one, it all pieces together. And then sometimes I'll do things like this week because that that particular um, data set was pretty complicated to explain in an audio format. I've spent most of this week now for this week's episode building a video. So basically giving the same information with an animated video to show the audience exactly what's going on. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I'm so fascinated by all of the information that you obtain and then you're able to very clearly disseminate that and and communicate that to your audience. Was there ever a time when you had something that was so difficult to put into a format where someone can easily consume it that you thought to yourself, I I can't do this right now? Like, I need to move on to something else? I bring in lots of experts along the way. And we keep talking about the sector data that I'm covering right now, but that's all that's on my brain right now. What we had found was a 123-page document that listed the sector data for every call for this case. It was information that both sides had stipulated to a trial didn't exist. And then, holy shit, there it is in the discovery file. It was just tucked away and hidden and nobody knew it was there. When I read it, it was just complete Greek to me. So the first thing I did was contact an expert, have them come on, explain to me how it worked. Then I tried to figure out an analysis based on that, talk to that person again, another expert, because sometimes it's difficult to get an expert that can go on the record. Like, for example, I was talking to people who work for Verizon. I'm like, cool, can you come on and do an interview? And explain this. And they're like, ah, no, they won't let us do that. You know, I keep going through hoops until I find an expert to come on. That happens a lot. And then also there's times, and that's where it comes down to not always the most entertaining, where there are times when it's exactly what you what you were just referring to, Lance, where it was, it's like, I'm very transparent with my audience. I'll go, look, I'm going to do my best to explain this to you in an audio format It's going to be hard to understand. I've put all these resources up on the website for you to look at to hopefully you'll better understand it. We'll talk about it more. You can ask your questions in the follow-up. Sometimes like this week where it's like, and I'm also going to make a video to try to explain it because some stuff is just really difficult to relay in just an audio format. I think that's a big part of what makes it consumable is that you're very transparent about where your expertise stops and another element needs to be brought in to assist everybody to learn. So it's refreshing to hear because you're not pretending to be something you're not. Just in this season alone, we've had, let's see, I've had Jim Clementi on, who's a retired FBI profiler to talk about some some crime scene analysis. We had a DNA expert come on and explain the forensics. The cell phone expert we ended up using is someone who um, worked and contracted for the CIA to track people using cell phone location. A medical expert come on to explain autopsies and stuff like that. Because I've been doing it for so long and I've consulted with so many experts along the way, some of the times I do know what's going on. You know, like like the, the sector data, once I had been taught, I could relay that information. But then I always had, maybe that's some of that imposter sy- syndrome you're talking about. But I always think, okay, I've explained it to you, but why should you take my word for it? So I'm also going to bring an expert on and let them explain it, and and I'll let you decide if those things line up. Well, tell us about this case that you're covering in Season 12. It's a crazy interesting case. It's the most complicated one we've ever worked. So this is in a tiny little community called Pinion Pines, California. It's near Palm Springs, Coachella Valley area. It's kind of high desert, so outside of the valley, there's this mountain road, Highway 74, that goes up into these mountains, 
And then there's this high desert community that's like a weird, unincorporated. The, the town, the village itself is almost a character in the story because it's people that want to be kind of off the grid in a way. So there's everything there from like wealthy people who just want to live off the grid to people that are cooking meth to, you know, people that have, you know, criminal charges that are hiding out. There's there's a weird mix of people that live up in this community. And it's a 2006 case, triple homicide. And what made it super interesting and complicated to understand, there's an 18-year-old girl, her mother and her mother's living boyfriend, essentially her stepdad, that were all murdered. The mom and the stepdad were both shot and the house was lit on fire and it burned the house to the ground, which was a night. This is the first time being because I was also an arson investigator. Um, and this is the first time I worked a case where there was like an arson to investigate. I got to be the expert for that one. There's nothing really complex about that. The weird thing is the 18 year old Becky was found in a wheelbarrow 70 feet away from the house lit on fire. And it just made this really complex scene. If you look at them each in isolation, Two people shot to death and then the house burned down to try to to try to conceal the crime. That's very normal. That happens all the time. I've personally been to those scenes before. Someone being killed and lit on fire in a burn barrel or in a in a wheelbarrow is odd, but you can almost track like what you know what might have been going on there behaviorally to cause someone to do that. But when you put the two together, it becomes very, very complex because you see behaviors in the house, the, the fact that the house was lit on fire. The intent and purpose in doing that was to conceal the fact that a crime was committed at all. They People do that because they hope that someone will assume, oh, there was a fire, it was an accident, and they died in the fire. They took that effort and then lit a body on fire out in the middle of the driveway in a wheelbarrow telling everybody, hey, this is a crime scene. So it was it's a very complex case. It was cold for a long time. The first arrests weren't made until eight years later. Two guys that were teenagers at the time of the crime were friends of Becky. One was was, was the young girl's ex-boyfriend and his friend were arrested. And then right before trial, the state dropped the charges. And then two years later, they tried him again in an entirely circumstantial case. When you start looking at those, you know, like we have Jim Clemente come on. He's like, whoever did this are violent. You're going to see these things. Probably isn't the first or last time they did, did such a violent act. One of them was the ex-boyfriend was a HVAC technician that he started right after that crime, you know, that he was still doing until the time he got arrested. His buddy is a decorated army ranger who has, you know, two purple hearts and a medal of valor. And then these guys get, get snatched away from their families and convicted on this circumstantial case. So usually when I start the season, when I screen cases, there's something wrong here. I think these guys might be innocent. And then I start where I, I have worked cases where I got a few months into it and said, you know what, this this evidence is showing me that I think that they may be guilty. And then in this case, it's the exact opposite, you know, is, is you know, my, my kind of philosophy is that if the state got the right person, if you take the evidence and you put a microscope on it, the case will get stronger. And that that like sector data that we're covering this week, it's like, you know, they made this case that the phone record showed they were heading towards the crime scene. Now we have the sector, the full detailed sector data. You put a microscope on it and it shows the opposite, that they were driving the other way. And that type of thing has been happening all along the way along the case. I don't know how you keep up with that. Well, I can only handle one case every two years, Lance, is how I do it. <laughs> I don't know how people that do 
the the one case per episode, I don't know how they remember anything because you know, my, you know what I'm doing. I'm just building on the same case over and over and over again. You know, as the year goes on, uh, so it's a little easier for me to track. But I mean, I'm engrossed in it. You know, I'm out here in my office by seven o'clock in the morning. Usually, I'm not back in the house until seven o'clock at night most nights. I'm in, out here on the weekend, so I'm engrossed in this case. Plus, constant discussions on social media. Family members of the convicted, you know, will contact me with stuff all the time. For me, once I start a case, I live that case until we've brought it to its conclusion. But in the same way, I bet you guys, you know, with the Moore Murray case, I'm sure you guys know that case like the back of your hand because you've been living it for years. I think with that case, it's tough because there's so many thoughts and really not a ton of info that's like official. There's a lot of ideas out there. We've got some, a lot of people listening do too, but the police don't really, they don't talk too much about it. That's the tough thing about cold cases is I think access to information gets tough. Uh, as opposed to wrongful convictions, which are already adjudicated. So usually you can get access to like full details of the case file. That's true. But in a case of a wrongful conviction, I, I feel like I get stuck in the mud even thinking about it because I feel like buried on top of incorrect information because there's a killer out there and I automatically, I'm like, well, you got to get the killer. How do you how do you find the killer? It's like, well, you, you got to take it step by step, apparently, obviously. Yeah, and we have a process through our season. So like this one, I've got three victims and two defendants in an eight-year investigation, 10 years before the final arrest was made. If you do listen to season 12 of Truth and Justice and you notice that about halfway, you know, around the 20 of the episodes, every episode is playing a police audio interview and you get sick of hearing them. Just know I was sick of it too. That's not that's not how we normally do it. But it was one of these cases where like I have to get all the information out and I've got all these interviews. I have no idea who did this. So I can't just only show you the ones I think are relevant. So I this was very weird season during that kind of middle stretch where I had to put those out. But generally what we do is, you know, we investigate the crime scene, the medical evidence, do behavioral analysis and the forensics. So we look at, you know, what all that hard data was. And then we shift over to looking at the case against the convicted, which is where we're at right now in that case. So we just take every aspect that the state used to convict them and look at it and say, is this valid? And that's how we kind of determine, did a wrongful conviction actually occur? In this case, I came to the conclusion that uh, that one did. And then the final phase is alternate suspect. It's kind of the, well, if not them, then who? Of course, you know, I don't have access to forensic testing and stuff like that. Sometimes I'm working with the attorneys that are on the case. And, you know, so I'll make suggestions for them what to do. But, you know, in a lot of cases, like season two, the Ed Eight's case that was just on that Hulu show, you know, in that one, we got to the end and, and I was able to narrow it down and say, okay, all evidence is pointing to these two people did it. And then I hand it off to the attorneys and I have to move on to another case because I can't go any further with it from there. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Tim had mentioned that he gets kind of stuck in the mud with the fact that there might be another criminal out there. There's, you know, you got to catch that person who's actually responsible for this. And you get so deep in this doing one case for such a long time. And you're meeting all these people, lawyers and family members and victims' families. And I know because you said at ObsessFest, you, you have a lot of empathy. If we were to cover a wrongful conviction... We do it from time to time. John Juco is one that we cover whenever there's an update. I get caught up in that. This is a human life. Like, how do you do this and not get so caught up in this is a human being that has their whole life taken away from them? And then 
you you need to move on to another case. It's very difficult, particularly when I first got started. In in our first few seasons, I you know really developed a relationship with the convicted person in prison. Ed being one of them, Kenny Snow, who also has been released now. Um, was one of them, a guy named Jesse Eldridge, who was our season three case, where I got very close to them. And it gets, for my personality, gets very difficult because you do, you get emotionally attached and and it's heartbreaking that they're still locked up and you want to get, get them out of there. So it's tough. I've, I've learned over the years to try to create more of a separation. It's probably made the show less entertaining because you don't hear me having these, you know, emotional friendly talks with the, with the convicted anymore. But you know, as as you go on and do this kind of work, it's controversial work. You you know you 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 get get a following of trolls. You know, and people that you know that, that maybe start off just thinking you're wrong about a case, and it turns into you must be wrong about every case. Start hearing, well, you're only saying you know you're you only think they're innocent because you're biased and this and that, which is all bullshit. I don't you know I'm not going to ever risk my reputation for any one case. But I kind of got to a place where I was like, you know, it it does give the appearance of bias if I'm. You know, buddies with the person that I'm that I'm working with. So I, I've I've created some of that separation, but at the same time, every case I spend, you know, I usually take multiple trips to the, you know, to the area to investigate the crime scene and stuff like that. I've made four, I think, out to the Palm Springs area working on this case, and I was just out there in December. Sometimes I I need that. Obviously, I didn't talk to the convicted; they're they're in prison. But the family members, you know, we had a couple of events while we were there, and the family members of the convicted came out and were just so thankful, and you know, just you know, for for giving them hope, for giving giving their their loved ones a voice, and letting people hear what really happened in the case. And there there is part of that where I almost need or and also you know our. Our, one of our co-hosts on our Friday follow-up episodes is Janet Varney. She's an actress. She also hosts the JV Club podcast and stuff. She's she's in the industry. She has a huge heart. And I, we just today, we recorded. And I was like, I'm so sorry I sucked you into this because she's so sweet. And she hears all the, the BS that you hear from neg- you know, negative people on the internet. But it's going out there and having Robert and Christian are the two guys that were convicted. You know, Having Robert's little sister and his wife. Uh, you know, and and his mom, you know, just give you a hug, and they're crying, and they're so thankful that you did it. Sometimes for me, I because because everything for me is just about people. It's about really doing something and making a difference in the world and helping people. So sometimes it's great to get that reminder that okay, I'm dealing with this internet bullshit all the time, and and it's and it's and it's exhausting me, and it's wearing me out, and it's it's making me want to do something else for a living sometimes, so I don't have to be on the internet. But then you go meet those people, and you're like, but what I'm doing does matter. Like like I, it, it is making a difference, and that's that's a that's a big motivator. I think sometimes doing this stuff alone in our home offices, hearkening back to what you said earlier about when you're at these conferences, it's shocking that people actually listen to your work because for all we know on a day-to-day basis no one's listening like for the most part unless you're really plugged into social media and looking at comments and stuff like that you're just doing your thing like i don't know i'm uploading stuff i don't know who's gonna listen someone probably will we'll see for you when you work on such heavy stuff you mentioned earlier how you've been doing some comedy tell us a little bit about this and can you give us some uh some sample jokes i know you you had a set (laughs) at obsessed fest yeah, the reason I got into podcasting, the part I left out of that story, 
was because the podcasts I listen to are mostly comedy podcasts. And one of my favorites is Jimmy Pardo's Never Not Funny back in early 2015. So I'd missed the boat. I'd listened to it late. He was joking around about cereal. And for like three episodes in a row, he kept talking about the cereal podcast. And so I was like, what the hell? I, I need to go listen to this just to see what I had just learned podcasts like in the last year. So I wanted to go see. But when I when I turned on episode one of Serial, I had no idea. Well, I didn't know it was a wrongful conviction. I didn't know what it was about. I had a hard time finding it in the podcast player because I was looking for Serial with a C. Didn't know how it was spelled. But so I've always really been interested in comedy. And I still, to this day, though, you know, Jimmy Pardo is still one of my favorite podcasts I've listened to. I listen to Conan O'Brien's podcast, Two Bears, One Cave with Tom Segura and Burt Kreischer. Like that's that's my jam. And then actually right before the pandemic, myself and my other co-host on the on the follow-ups, Zach Weaver, I just mentioned that I've always wanted to try stand-up. And, you know, he said, well, he, he always wanted to try it too. So we actually went down and and did an open open mic and it went pretty well. And then the pandemic happened, everything shut down. And then we started doing open mics, uh, more so me, started doing open mics again recently. And then when Patrick told me for Obsess Fest, he was like, yeah, we're just, you know, anything you want to do, we want to make this a fun conference, you know, to be not just super serious all the time. So and I was like, well, you interested in a true crime stand-up comedy thing? Because that's something I'd like to do. And Patrick was nice enough to give me a shot to do it. So I spent all summer, like, going to their local comedy club, like, working out jokes and and getting ready and then did a full hour set at Obsessed Fest and it, it went really well. I think it was a pretty easy crowd, but it went pretty well. It's a nice kind of release for me to unplug from all this to go out and do it. Talking to Zach this weekend when we had we had a show this weekend that you know I'm new to comedy, but I'm not new to to standing on a stage in front of people talking. So it was kind of a pretty easy transition for me. But I did a, a set someone someone asked me to come do a middle set Last week for a show, there was a booker there that actually booked me now to go do a headlining set in Portage, Indiana. So it's it's something like it doesn't pay for shit, but it's 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 something fun to do. But as far as, far as do, let me see, giving you a sample now. The thing is, <laughs> my my comedy is my style of comedy is a lot of it's a lot of crowd work and there and it's a lot of. Uh, storytelling for example one of the the bits that i do is a is is a true story about how when you get older parts of your body stop working like there's things you're not supposed to have to think about like breathing uh but all of a sudden you get older and then you go to you go to bed at night and your body forgets to breathe i explain how one morning i wake up and my wife is standing next to me with her phone in her hand um the thing one might use to call 911 with and, and 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 instead she shows me a video of me sleeping snoring and then not breathing for 4 minutes and 37 seconds on the phone and uh and she's mad at me somehow for this while she filmed me dead for 4 minutes and 37 seconds uh, and I talk about how uh I got a it's I don't want to just do this, <laughs> do this set, but I was say I was lucky enough in this last year to have someone I love very much die, and that person uh, happened to have a CPAP machine, so I got it for free and had no idea how to use it, and I used the CPAP machine, and then um, the first night I slept like a baby, and I woke up with uh, with a pretty impressive erection that morning, uh, not you know that I think was caused by the <laughs> by the CPAP machine. <laughs> thanks for that yeah yeah uh <laughs> so it's shit like that it's dumb dick jokes that i tell um all 
based on true stories. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> For uh, the audience's purposes here, uh, Tim and I typically put our microphones on mute when the, the guest is speaking. So we were laughing while you were telling that. I just want to make it clear that even though you couldn't hear us, we were laughing. Well, that was, if you, listen, if you come to one of my shows, you'll hear that story told with all the beats and tags all, all built into it. Uh, but there, as I like to, to, to tell, my, my, my daughter was mad at me at the last, not really mad, but I have, a, I have stories I tell about my son, uh, who's eight, about to turn 18, and then my daughter was like, but you never tell any stories about me on stage. And so I said, okay. And I did. Uh, and then I lied and told a story that was completely not true. <laughs> She's like, I didn't say that. Um, but, th- but that, yeah, that, that's what you get. You get a bunch of, you get a bunch of stories based in reality with a bunch of tags added to it. It go- So listen, all I can tell you is so far, everybody that's watched it laughs. And I guess that's what they're supposed to do. Good. Yeah. That is the goal. Uh, well, thank you so much, Bob, for spending some time with us here today and telling us about your your life and your cases and such. Where can folks listen to your work? Uh, Truth and Justice, obviously, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, and and if you like this interview style better, too, we didn't talk much about it, but, but true, on True Crime Binge, my other show, uh, that's a weekly show where every week I interview other true crime podcast creators. And so, you know, we do an interview. So it's the idea is if it's a podcast you listen to, you get to hear some personal behind the scenes type stuff about them. If it's a show you've never heard of before, then they introduce you to that. So we talk about their background, talk about how they made the they came to make the podcast, what the podcast is like. And then usually we talk about a case not super dissimilar to what you guys are doing on 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 Crawl Space. Um, more dick jokes probably on True Crime Binge than uh, on Crawl Space. Um, but yeah, both those you can get you can get anywhere. And if you're ever interested in comedy, there's nothing up there right now because we're just kind of building out a tour. But uh, BobRuffEvents.com is where we put all of our, our live shows. Awesome. Well, it was fantastic to finally meet you. Yeah, it is. It is good to meet you, Lance. I'm glad after all these years we finally connected. Tim and I go way back. I'm super. You know, I'm really excited about Obsessed Fest. You guys are going again, right? Yes, can't wait. So much fun. If you haven't bought tickets to Obsessed Fest, buy them now. 